G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. We're really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast, and we don't ask for much in return. So we'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop to Apple Podcasts or Acast and leave us a review. Obviously, a five-star review would be great, and we'd really appreciate it if you could take a couple of minutes of your time to leave us a review. There's one review to read out from uh, Lino Pino Flux. So uh, re- I love these as they come in, and five stars, thankfully. Um, I really enjoy these podcasts, very relevant to any vet in clinical practice, a great variety of topics and very well structured and presented. Well, that's very kind. I find them e- uh, very easy to follow. There's a very logical and thorough approach and any question I think of while listening seems to be answered almost immediately in the ensuing discussion. The best veterinary podcasts I have found. Please keep them coming. Um, really kind and thank you very much. And honestly, it does help us with the metrics and getting this information out to the people that want to listen to it. So this is the second part of a conversation that I had with Rose Tethas, one of the lecturers here in veterinary ophthalmology at the RBC, talking about uh, common conditions um, that we find in horses to do um, with, um, sorry, common ophthalmic conditions in horses. We hope you enjoy um, so, so maybe as far as sort of common conditions go, maybe we could uh, speak about like trauma. Is there, is there anything particular apart from uh, corneal damage that you get concerned about? Because I know horses are always hierarchical, aren't they? And they get into scuffles with themselves. So, yeah. so not only actually you know, in, the, in the field running around, they might hit each other's heads or mm. kick each other, whatever. So it, it, do you have a, a, a concern about... I suppose like bleeding into the eye or do you, do you examine it, it, it differently or is it just the, the, the same same approach? And when do you get sort of concerned with traumatic injuries to the eye? Yeah, so um, they, they're very prone to trauma, both types, sharp and blunt. You, you might think about both types as equally dangerous, but actually blunt trauma can be a lot more visual threatening than sharp trauma so sharp trauma i consider lacerations um likely thorn related like black thorn related either with the foreign body embedded within the eye or with just a what we call a foreign body trauma just a in and out injury or uh laceration so um if they if those occur occur on the surface of of the cornea for example you need to try and assess the depth if you can, of how deep those that sharp injury has gone. Um, especially, there's a big, big difference on remaining within the cornea to actually reaching inside the eye. Um, very close to the cornea, we'll find the lens, uh, which is in a structure that very easily, unfortunately, can, can develop cataracts. Um, so um, laceration secondary to a thorn, um, not immediately, potentially, but within a few weeks or a few months, might induce a cataract into, inside the eye if the lens has been involved. Um, so if you have an eye that you suspect is undergone a trauma, you can't see the thorn, but you can see that little pinpoint um, um, uh, injury to the cornea and the eye has got blood inside and the pupil is very myotic. Um, I would definitely have some concerns that that injury was full thickness because of how much affected the inside of the eye is. If you've got concerns of how much involvement there is of the eye, as long as you think that the eye is safe, you could do an ultrasound. Uh, you could do an ultrasound of the of the globe and assess the 
um, intraocular structures such as lens and vitreous and retina, of course, um, on the ultrasound. But you need to be quite um, careful if you've had a penetration that you don't actually damage the cornea and it leaks again. And when you're using an ultrasound on an eye, do you, do you actually put it on the cornea itself? Do you block the cornea or do you go transpalpebrally? In the horse, you can very nicely do it transpalpebral. So in small animals, we usually recommend transcorneal because they got, they're hairier, um, they've got a bit floppy eyelids or so more air gets accumulated in the fornix, etc. But in the horse with the eyelids closed, um, you can just go through the upper eyelid um, and have a relatively good view of the, of the inside of the eye. Um, more than actually fluffing, trying to open the eye and, and then putting the probe at the same time um, if you were trying to do it transcorneal. So through the eyelids, as long as you go to a relatively high mega earth probe, you should be okay. Anything that you can examine tendons with, you could examine an eye. Yeah. Okay. Let, let's get to you. And i worried about pressure as well, measuring pressure with, with eyes that have had trauma. Is, is, is that what would be what you would do as well? Uh, I probably would, unless I'm worried that the eye is leaked recently. So I would treat the eye a bit more like a fragile eye if he's had any penetrating injury. Um, and I'll probably minimise quite a lot of my active involvement with the eye. So uh, putting drops in there and then or manipulating the eye too much or looking for formulas in the phonics. Maybe I wouldn't do all, all pressure check. Maybe I wouldn't do all this if I have got... Um, a query of a penetrating to the cornea. So if you said that the penetration could have been like in and out and you're concerned about it actually penetrating the cornea, is there a way you can be sure of, of that? So how, how do you make that assessment? So usually eyes that they've had a full thickness injury, um, they will have um, more trauma, more intraocular signs and, and bleeding and fibrin formation and multi-pupillar classic. Um, another test that you could do um, is something that's called a sidal test. Um, so a sidal test is a test for checking leakage of the aqueous humor through a full thickness penetration of the cornea. So obviously the anterior segment is filled of aqueous humor, which is very water-like fluid. Um, and it's contained in there through the cornea. So if you've had an in-and-out injury with a thorn, for example, so a very small pinpoint um, injury, maybe the rate of leakage is not uh, big enough for the eye to collapse, so you might, it might actually not look um, that's perforated or is leaking. What you could do is that you, put, uh, you can put fluorescein um, onto the surface of the eye. Um, don't flush it like you do with a fluorescein stain, um, and then use your uh, blue light or your cobalt blue light from your direct ophthalmoscope or the piece of equipment you're using, or sometimes even with white light you can see it. Um, so because you've not flushed the fluorescein, it will create like a green layer over the surface of the eye, which um, then will be um, focally diluted by the aqueous humor as it comes out of the little pinpoint. So you'll have like a little river of of clear fluid coming out and diluting your your um, your fluorescein on the surface. So that is called a positive sidal test, which means that you have got a full thickness penetration of the cornea that's actively leaking. Penetrations of the cornea, if they this for call like um, like a thorn-like size, um, they could potentially seal, and I've seen it, and surely there's a lot of horses around that they had thorns in their eyes and they never had surgery, but that would be concern for referral. 
Um, so if you could see uh, leakage yes. from the anterior chamber, then, then... Sometimes it seals, sometimes it can self-seal the cornea, or sometimes a little bit of iris plucks the hole, which is called anterior synechia. So the iris moves as the fluid comes out, moves towards the cornea inner side, the endothelium, and they'll literally pluck the hole. Um, and then you might come across years after this have happened to a horse that's got a, a strange iris attachment to the cornea. So that, that might be what's happened, that at some point in the past had a penetration. Um, so they can seal on their own. Um, these horses need to be kept very, um, they need to be considered very fragile eye. Obviously, with our small animals, we put collars, which we can't, you know, heart collars, e-collars that we can't put on horses. So there's um, some type of masks which are designed for this. So they're head masks with um, like a cup-like pla heart plastic they got right and left. So for whatever the eye you need, there's different sizes um, and you need to make sure that you give the right size to the right horse. If not, they can even hurt more these colours than actually help. Um, but that avoids them from rubbing. Horses tend to rub a lot with their, with their legs or with the stable or whatever they are. Um, so just the friction of them rubbing with something can make the eye really leak. So these eyes need to be treated um, very um, considered very fragile. And would you give uh, topical antibiotics with, with uh, that? Yeah, probably I would. Um, so one thing that you could do to try to avoid manipulation of the eye um, with um, the client applying the drops regularly um, is that you could put a superpyrrole lavash. Um, so um, superpyrrole lavash is a um, tubing system that uh, will connect the, the conjunctival fornix with... Um, um, a tube that comes out, or, and usually I put them under the lower eyelid, I, I, they tend to have less problems. Obviously, these tubes can rub the surface and cause an ulcer, so they need to be properly placed away from the cornea. Um, so this tube will start with a little platform, so it will not allow the tube to pull through um, out of the conjunctival fornix through the skin. But the rest comes out, and then you just gently situate around the head, and uh, the end tube will be at the level of the main you can even put it on the other side if you if you wish. So if the horse is a bit spooky on the right because that's where he's painful, you can put the tubing on the left side of the mane um, and attach it to um, all the mane, really. Um, so you keep... And then you apply about a couple of mLs of drug is enough through the tube followed by air. So the drop move around the tubing up into the conjunctival fornix. Um, and that's a way to give you medication that um, is a little bit gentler to the horse, especially if they're very head shy, because they can become really, really even dangerous, potentially, if they got painful eyes and you have to do the medication because it's the best for the eye, but it can be very, very dangerous for the person applying the drop. So very head shy horses or horses which I preview already that I'm going to have quite a lot of medication and they might potentially become a bit spooky or, or head shy, then I would place a lavage. Do they normally tolerate um, those tubes and the whatever treatment that is going in a lot better than they would do sort of being approached by the side and, and putting medications in yes. them and restraints? So it's kind of, they're, they're not concerned about the actual medication going in the eye, they're just concerned about you coming up to them and opening their eye and sticking things in. 
that's obviously very very case specific some yeah. some horses i've got with chronic medication they just literally put their head over their owner's shoulder and they put the cream on their own so i think the pain is a big factor so um if it's that eye is actively painful at that stage or it's been painful in the past or they associate you apply, applying the drops with pain, the potential will be very keen. Obviously, there is a human bond um, factor there as well and a horse temperament factor as well. But um, if I got a case in which I may have to put quite frequent medication, I'm talking something over four, six times a day drops um, and is an eye that is painful or at risk of being painful always a horse whose temperament is not ideal um i may i may leave a put a lavage on and clients if they instruct it properly they can use that at home as well uh, it's not only a hospital device really we've sent some home with some handouts or how to use it etc horses don't love it because you you're putting the air as well so they're not liking it but i think they dislike less um, than you going and opening the eye every time when they've got a really sore eye. And when you're dealing with a, with a painful eye in a horse, do you always go for uh, topical analgesia or, or do, does it sort of depend on the, on the horse whether you give them systemic analgesia as well? Um, similar to other species, depending on the course, if I want to give more than analgesia, anti-inflammatory, um, painkiller, um, I'll give it systemical. Um, for not very painful conditions, you can give but, um any big inflammation in the eye, meaning a melt of the cornea or potentially something as severe as an EIU, any quite recurrent uveitis, I might go with something a little bit stronger to start with, like um, uh, phenodyne. Um, which you can range those depending how the horse is. Um, that's the main systemic anti-inflammatory pain relievers that we uh, use routinely outside of the hospital uh, for cases. If you've got um, both ulcer, um, equally ulcer or uveitis, um, if you've got a horse with a myotic pupil for whatever the reason, um, those will benefit a lot from topical atropine. Um, the cycloplegic effect of the atropine is really beneficial under discomfort. Um, so the pain that myosis causes is similar to what happens to us if you look straight to the sun, that your eyes are painful. So that's a spasm of your ciliary body. So it's really, really painful. Um, that sort of spasm, which um, is associated with myosis as well. So by giving atropine, we relax those muscles and we remove part of the ocular pain they feel when they've got that myotic pupil. And that can be repeated daily if necessary. I would repeat it as needed so if i got a multi-pupil and i give atropine today and tomorrow the pupil is not fully dilated interestingly enough the pupil when it's fully dilated is round like in the other species um similar to cats they got a sleep pupil when, but when they dilate they got round pupils so the same for the horse um um so if the pupil remains dilated for three days then i'll wait three days to give another dose of atropine but if i need to do it every day um then you can do that. You always monitor gut movements because it can be systemically absorbed, but I wouldn't generally use it more than once a day. Very, very rarely with fungic keratitis or very severe uveitis, I may need to give it more than once a day, but generally with once a day for a few days until you get over that little bit of inflammation the first few days, um, you've got enough with the atropine. 
And obviously, if you're giving atropine to these guys, they're going to be in a stable in environment. So it could be out of the out of the sun, or it doesn't doesn't really matter. Well, they'll probably be with a mask as well. Okay. Um, if they actually got a painful condition, then they may wrap. So that might give them a bit of shade. Um, to be honest, if you got something on atropine, it's probably got quite a severe ocular condition. So you might want to have the horse close by not have to go and chase you around and feel every time you need to give you drops so it's probably that they just happen to be in on stocks anyway fair enough fair enough <laughs> and, you, and you mentioned you mentioned it a few times uh, the uh so erv so eru sorry equine e- recurrent uveitis so so can you can you briefly explain what what is that and uh, and how, how do we diagnose it and probably more importantly or, or how do we think we treat it so eru is um, as you said, equine recurrent uveitis. Um, so it's a quite severe condition because it can have potentially quite big implications for vision, even glove retention. Um, so as its name implies, is a is a, a specific of the horse. It's recurrent, so the episodes of inflammation of the uvea of uveitis that recur throughout time. Um, there's three forms. Um, there's the classic form. Uh, insidious form and posterior form of ERU. The one that we see most commonly in the UK is the classic form, which are usually warm blots, um, middle-aged, young, but not young horses, but early middle-aged horses that start developing recurrent episodes of ocular pain. Mm, Pain in horses is usually um, expressed with tearing, they can have periocular swelling, literally the eyelids can uh, become inflamed. They can have a myotic pupil, they can have cornea edema, so the, the cornea might be a bit cloudy, um, and they might be a, he- a bit head shy. This first episode might occur out of the blue. Um, there are some indications to um, um, justify that it starts with trauma and then that inflammation just gets uh, perpetuated. This is an autoimmune disease um, of the horse eye. Um, so it might be a first trigger that is a trauma and then that uveitis becomes vicious. But that's not, when you speak to the clients, that is not always the case. Sometimes it just occurs. Um, so this initial episode, so things that you might see in an acute uh, bunch of uveitis would be that the eye is painful, um, there's conjunctival hyperemia, there's corneal edema, and there's a myotic pupil. You might find other things such as hyphema, hypopion, fibrin in the anterior chamber, etc. Um, but the meiosis, um, red eye and corneal edema and pain are usually uh, always present. The rest can vary depending on the severity of the, of the inflammation. So this first bounce or second bounce of inflammation might respond uh, well to topical anti-inflammatories such as Maxidrol ointment, which is very commonly used in equine practice because it can be given twice a day since it's an ointment might stay onto the eye uh, quite a lot and contains, contains dexamethasone and double antibiotic. Um, always make sure that your fluorescent stain the eye before because, again, any corneal injury traumatic, for example, can um, cause similar signs, edema, myotic pupil, red eye and painful eye. So you need to make sure that you haven't got an ulcer, that you've got a primary in- intraocular inflammation without corneal involvement for you to start the, the treatment with um, steroids. Um, and atropine, 
and potentially systemic beard. Um, so that might be a standard treatment that you might start, but um, then within a week to 10 days, the eyes might get better, but then a few weeks down the line or months down the line, a similar episode will occur in the same eye. Um, when you've got two or three episodes which are quite similar, they respond to um, inflammation, um, anti-inflammatories, I would start becoming a bit suspicious that you've got an ERU um, case. So this is what a classic ERU is. So it's um, uh, on-off episodes of quite acute inflammation um, intermediate with um, uh, episodes or weeks or even months of non inflammation into the eye. If you were to do a complete exam in between flare-ups, you might see a little bit of flare or slightly lower pressure or signs of chronic EIU, which I'll talk to you in a minute. Um, but they're more or less functional, comfortable, normally look into the client eyes in between. So that is the classic form and that's in warm bloods and that, the one that we see here. The second type of form is uh, the insidious. So this one is classical in a palooza horses um, and tends to be more often compared to the classic one bilateral. Um, and as its name says, it's very insidious. So these acute bounces are not so obvious. So the horses that start developing inflammation, but they just get missed for a long time. So when they actually become obvious to the client that they got an issue, um, there's already very, very severe chronic signs of uveitis, such as glaucoma, cataract formation, cyanicia formation, retinal detachment, etc. So the prognosis for the insidious uveitis, which is in Appaloosa horses, tends to be a lot, it's poor in all of them, or very guarded in all of them, unfortunately. But these ones, you tend to get to a point in which your treatment options are very limited, simply because the eyes are already beyond help. Um, if you have a cataract, sure, we offer, and a lot of other centers offer cataract surgery, but you need to make sure that the rest of the eye is healthy because you might have a cataract and retinal atrophy or a cataract and a retinal attachment, which make the eye n helpless, really. Um, so these eyes become more of a um, welfare situation in which you might need to remove them or um, medical treatment just to keep them comfortable. But they... Impressingly enough, they cope really well with ocular pain, so th that's why they get missed, this uh, apollosis, and the form of EAU they've got is less, it's quite severe, but it's less bouncy, uh, like we see on the other type. So with these Appaloosa horses, have they looked into any any genetic component and trying to sort of breed that out of the horses if, if it is, or, or do we just not, not know? There's a lot of um, research going on with this disease in the States, um, from what actually triggers this, which aplotypes trigger it, what one eye, one not the other eye, why this breeds one, not others, um, etc. So there's quite a lot of research going on, to my knowledge. There's not a lot at the moment about apoleusis, um, but that might not mean that they might be coming anytime soon. But they definitely seem to have a very specific type of EIU themselves. So you said we have classical and insidious and also the chronic as, as posterior. well? Posterior. Posterior. So the, the, it's similar to the classic um, in that um, um, it's active, it's got pain and inflammation, etc. But instead of affecting the anterior segment, if you remember what the classic, we talked about coenolidema, myosis, hypopion, conjunctival hyperemia. So instead of affecting the anterior segment of the eye, the, the posterior the posterior EIU mainly affects the vitreous 
That's one when I took that exam said that it's very important we check for vitreous and especially for horses that I imported from Europe because this is very big in Europe breeds, German breeds, um, etc. So all the main continent um, European breeds suffer a lot from posterior U and we've seen it in the UK and a lot of them actually just been recently imported, etc. Um, again, um, <laughs> nobody really knows why this happens. There is again a lot of research done in Leptospira, seen a lot of these horses stay from very wet countries and um, there's been a certain association with posterior EAU and Leptospira infection. Um, so if I had a case of this, I would probably take a PCR, a sample from PCR of the vitreous, so it's something that can not be done on a field really is a specialist um this is you could do serology etc but um um the some of these posterior eius with inflammation of the vitreous have got positive pcr within the vitreous for leptospira um so is the idea that if you treat that you can manage them better or that actually it's a immune mediated component and then actually once the trigger has happened well it's there to stay so when we talk about treatment in a minute we can this is considered when we talk about treatment of the posterior eius but you'll have to probably remove that features remove that content you can treat them the eye is indeed a very encapsulated structure so some of the systemic drugs won't get that well into the vitreous and the vitreous per se is just um, hyaluronic acid with a the very odd cell so it's a very um, not actively changing structure um, so if there were any electrospeeder could be could get sequestered in there and not be enriched very well with medication um, so we can talk about treatment in a minute but um, um, I think it's worth having this in consideration because again if you wouldn't um, if you have a case with leptospira and you wouldn't treat that you might not achieve the diagnosis that you want but um, the diagnosis the, the, um, the outcome that you that you wish but um, this leptospira again could be potentially the trigger that then, from then that immunomediated um, disease to establish um, so it doesn't mean that by treating it you'll probably cure them none of the EIUs can be cured. So it's quite, quite, a, quite a frustrating um, condition to have for both, uh, both the client and, and, and the horse. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, uh, especially if you've got a bilateral one, uh, they, can be, they can be quite... Uh, um, uh, overall, decrease a lot the, the quality of life for those animal and people, really. So is the treatment pretty similar for all forms? Yes, with different similitudes. So we do have an immunomediated disease, so anti-inflammatory would be our main case for the treatment, both combination of topical and systemic. So we've got those options, um, topical anti-inflammatories. You can combine both um, non-steroidals and steroids um, without severe systemic effects of combination of both or local effects of combination. So a difference, I had students asking me this yesterday, it never occurred to me. Yeah, of course we do combine both onto the eye. Um, then atropine for cycloplasia and pain relief and systemic non-steroidals. Some people is use systemic steroids. I don't have that much experience with it, but you have to consider all the pros and cons of systemic steroids in the horse. Um, so this is applicable to all the forms. And then there is some specificities of each form. Um, so 
if we start with the posterior one, because that's quite obvious, you have got an issue in, into the back of the eye. So that's where you need to focus your um, your efforts. So horses with posterior uveitis, most of them will require a very specific surgical technique, which is called vitrectomy. Um, so a vitrectomy, as its name says, is a removal of the vitreous. Um, so that is a specialized treatment uh, with a very specialized uh, equipment and expertise. Um, it's not that commonly done in the country, in this country, because we don't have these cases so much, but it's definitely done. Um, Europe um, does a lot more of these techniques and they have got most of the um, um, publications, etc., and research on that and is done on Europe mainland. Um, can, I, can I just ask, is that... Is that sticking a needle in or is that actually surgically cutting down into the eye and, and basically using some is is keyhole surgery so yeah. um i've been involved with some cases here in the uk so you have got three ports one has got um illumination and camera one has got um, irrigation to keep the eye foam and the other one has a device that's the vitrectum which is like a little guillotine and tube. The incisions are, I can't remember from my head, but point 1.2 millimeters each. So they're very, very small equipment. You you have got a very specific land marks where to use the incisions because they, they will be full thickness on through the sclera. So you got a high risk of inducing a retinal detachment if you do your incisions in the wrong place, since the retina is just going to be a few millimeters away from you. Wow. Um, and then you keep the irrigation going throughout the surgery and then you, very strange, a bit like video game playing, I guess, your hands on one, on one place and you look at the camera <laughs> and the TV on the other and literally you, with both hands, you direct the camera illumination port with the guillotine port and you just remove all the dirt all the membranes, all the debris that you see in that vitreous. It's not a full vitrectomy because that will induce a really, really high risk of retinal attachment since the vitreous is very important for um, uh, for the survival and the functioning of the retina. Um, but mainly it's behind the lens um, and what we call a core vitrectomy, so the very center of the vitreous what tends to be more involved. You literally try to remove as much as you can see um, without causing any damage. Wow, that sounds uh, rather complicated. It is and very complicated. Delicate. And um, yeah, so obviously these horses need to be under GI and uh, neuromuscular block. For the other like, thing I like to talk about EIU and surgery is that for both insidious EIU and classic EIU, which uh, affect more than anterior segment, this, this surgery is not indicated. Um, so one of the things that we offer and a lot of the referrals offer um, in the UK is the placement of cyclosporine implants um, on the supracoroidal space. Um, so this is a not real space, but between the choroid and the sclera. So within the wall of the eye. Mm -hmm. Again, it's very specific landmarks to where to put these implants. And these plants are little discs um, come from the States um, and they've been... Um, um, impregnated with cyclosporine slow release. There's quite a lot of studies from a few years ago and now some long-term studies about these implants. So they place between the choroid and the sclera 
Um, and they'll slowly release cyclosporine. So cyclosporine obviously is an immunomodulator and they'll help us to control the flare-ups. So the idea with these implants is that they'll reduce the severity of the flare-ups of the classic EIU and they'll sparse them in time. They've got aspiring um, um, dates, so they'll last for a few years each implant. Um, so they might need to be replaced, especially if it's a rather young horse. Um, and there is some good results uh, from them. However, um, any case of EIU, um, the owners need to be aware of the very poor outcome on the long term. Um, the main reason why these eyes end up by having to be removed is for the development of secondary glaucoma. Um, so like any uveitis in any species um, can ultimately cause a blockage of the drainage angle. Um, so you can have secondary glaucoma, which again can be quite painful. And if the EU was unblinding the glaucoma, it will. Um, so these eyes become painful and uh, blind and the indication is to remove them. So any case of EU has got a lot of chances to end up having to be removed, especially if they appear in rather young horses. They've got more years to develop issues that can be um, severe. It's probably a good time to also talking about like removing horses' eyes, who, who they manage pretty well with, with one eye, even though they, they, they don't have a, the same binocular vision, do they, as, as other species sort of we, yeah. we deal with. So yeah. Does it cause them uh, issues or, or yeah, what so do we know? Similar to other species is um, when the horse is blind already, um, the inoculation won't deteriorate that in any way. So what we'll do will be to remove the pain. And that is in a lot of times what affects the quality of life of the animal more than actually the blindness, which might be something we can't work on anyway. Um, it is true that because of their physiology and anatomy, um, they have a larger vi visual field, as we said, they can nearly see back to their tail. So they'll lose a bigger proportion, um, if you like, of vision compared to us, but they'll still see quite a lot from the other eye and they'll see in front of them as well. Um, so I think as long as they're kept with good old partners they know on the field and um, some of them carry on working all right, I got some jumping, uh, some dressaging, um, uh, that they're still active despite having one eye, um, depending off the laws of the whatever the sport they do, etc. Um, we have given a, a show horse with one eye only that he's doing really well. Oh. Still very handsome. <laughs> so I think they can overall continue with a good quality of life as long as they're well managed and um, sensibly managed, really. Excellent, excellent, and uh, and so we, we were going to have a, a maybe a little a little chat as well about uh, iris cysts. Oh yes, um, so iris cyst is again another quite horse um, a specific disease that might be worth um, talking about. So, um, so the iris is obviously part of the uvea, and the the anterior most part of the uvea, and that iris has got a granula iridica, which is that little umbrella that we talk about before, uh, dorsally to the pupil and ventrally to the pupil, to give a view of shade to the eye. So for unknown reasons, um, um, they can occur secondary to inflammation, but most of the cases, um, they just develop spontaneously. Um, this cyst 
cystic structures raising from this granuloiridicus, mainly more than actually they call iris cyst, but they're granuloiridicus cyst. So um, you'll identify them because they have a very smooth surface. The granuloiridicus is partly bulging into the anterior chamber, clo close to the cornea. Um, it's rough and it's very textured and very lumpy. Um, so the cysts remain very pigmented um, and attached to the granuloiridica and iris, but they're very, like a balloon, yes, yeah, so a very smoothed surface. Um, they can affect um, the dorsal or the ventral granuloiridica. You can have one or more than one. Um, other species like dogs can develop iris cysts or uveal cysts that tend to detach and then just swim around in the anterior chamber. Horses' uveal cysts remain attached to the iris. I have not yet seen one that is, and I think is reported either. So I think the physiology that just remain attached. So basically, what happens is that they just carry on filling and filling and filling with fluid. Um, I think they reach a level in which they don't get bigger because I've never seen anything dramatic. Um, but there's a couple of things important about them. One of them is that they need to be differentiated from other severe conditions from the eye, like um, uveal melanomas that can occur in grey horses more than any. Um, and there, are, there would be swellings of the body of the iris more than actually from the pupil. So the actual iris might get thicker, again, bulge towards the cornea or even contact the cornea. If you've got doubts of which one you've got, you can ultrasound the eye again. So the, the, um, the iris melanoma will be tissue-filled, similar consistency than the iris, while the cyst will be fluid-filled and literally will be like a, a balloon structure. Um, so that's the first thing that's important about them. The second thing is that they can potentially cause clinical signs. They're very benign condition at the end of the day. It's just a little um, growth of the granuloiridica, non-neoplastic, so it's, it's not very severe for the eye, but they can cause similar um, some uh, signs, mainly secondary to visual impairment. So some horses can be a little bit spooky from one side, um, and that might be associated to the presence of a cyst, especially I found the lateral ones to be more um, um, clinically significant than the medial ones. And the reason for this is because they actually obscure a lot more of the visual field, because if they're medial, then soon the, se the other eye takes over the visual field, if you like. So they might have a bit of an impairment just in front of the head, but it's not as much that if you miss three quarters of your lateral visual field. So in this case, this is when it's interesting to check the menace response from medial and lateral that we said before. So if you have got a cyst position in one place, make sure that you get some menace response from that side as well. Um, that might help you determine if that's the cause of the bad behavior of the horse or not. Um, so they can be a bit spooky or difficult to train or it is rarely but sometimes associated with head shaking which is obviously a big condition in, in horses um, that can be caused for a lot of other reasons um, um, but could also be caused by um, iris cysts. So some of them will be completely asymptomatic and they'll just be fine on health checks and or even proposed exams. If you see in a proposed exam I think it's worth mentioning it. Um, because obviously um, could be significant finding, um, but they're easy enough to treat as well. So if they're not causing any clinical signs, 
I would just let them be. Then unlikely to cause a big issue like obstruction of the aqueous humor flow or um, dramatic visual impairment if they aren't already. Um, and if they have got, they can be deflated literally. So um, what we use here um, is laser. So we just laser a little hole in it through the cornea. It's a very quick um, procedure that we can do standing um, with, again, the auricular papilla block. So we can keep the eye open. We put topical anesthesia and we keep the ocular surface lubricated throughout the procedure because we need to keep the eyelids open basically. Um, and then we just, uh, with a head-mounted laser, we just laser the, the cyst and create a little hole. Um, and then the fluid leaks out and the actual walls of the cyst collapse over each other. So the, the visual impairment improves a lot with these cases. The cases I've had, um, they've ha I have had good reports from them. That's uh, yeah. that's pre pretty pretty impressive. I like that. We do a lot of is, cool is, things in ophthalmology. Is, is there a, <laughs> is there a particular laser that you uh, that you need? Uh, we use dial a diode laser here. Okay. Eight hundred and twenty, uh, uh, the wavelength. No matter Wow, that's uh, um, that's pretty impressive. Um, and, and maybe uh, did we did we miss anything when we spoke about uh, corneal disease and, and trauma? Do you think we because we, we covered I suppose like penetration injuries and and, uh, and and ulcers, but do you think we missed it? Is there anything else like with, that's common in, in horses with regards to the corneal disease? You said that they don't actually get dry eye as 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 much. Um, so a couple of things about cornea. So I like to talk about one primary corneal disease in the horse, which is immunomediated um, keratopathy. Um, and I like to talk about as well a bit of approach to a corneal disease. Um, so if you talk about approach, is that um, it, it seems to be um, sometimes misdiagnosed as a primary corneal condition um, in some cases. So we might think about corneal disease most commonly related to trauma or to um, even a primary corneal condition, but isolated to the cornea. But unfortunately, a lot of intraocular problems can cause secondary corneal pathology. So you could have a case of um, recurrent ulcerations. You can't find the cause for those ulcers, um, and they keep recurring throughout six months. Um, is a is an eye that is permanently opaque. You don't know if it is corneal edema or if it is um, scarring or if it's had, it's had a trauma in the past. So you don't know exactly what's going on, but these ulcers keep occurring um, and you keep treating them simply as ulcers. But maybe that eye has got glaucoma. That glaucoma is causing very much corneal edema, hence the opacity. And these ulcers are literally little blisters of fluid that keep popping. Um, so we've had some cases referred for um, corneal, recurring corneal ulcerations, potentially immunomediated keratitis, which is what I'm going to talk in a minute, um, for surgery of this, and they have been misdiagnosed for EIU, for glaucoma, or even for facial paralysis. So again, what I want to say with this is that what we've said at the very beginning about always check everything and always check both eyes here is a good example, is that cornea health uh, depends a lot of the rest of the structure. That's obviously applicable to across species, really. Um, so you might have a very specific sign that is corneal edema, 
and that might be secondary to a tr- tumor inside the eye or to a glaucoma or to a uveitis or to a corneal pathology to a thorn etc so if you don't check that intraocular structures you might misdiagnose as a primary corneal condition and actually have got something more sinister going on such as glaucoma or EIU. Maybe a bit of a, a, a sidetrack, or, or inadvertently so, but uh, often um, when in the small animal hospital, we ask you guys to have a look at, uh, at eyes, and it might be an ocular manifestation of a systemic disease. Is, is that quite... Do ponies and horses have that as well? Do sometimes the, the problem that's going on that you can see in the eye is actually because of lymphoma or something else? I think they're pretty rare. The ones I've had were lymphomas, um, so they can cause bilateral intraocular uh, disease. They can cause conjunctival involvement as well, orbital involvement. Um, I guess you could have all the issues um, such as bleeding disorders or um, all the type of neoplasias that can go into the eye, um, but they are a lot less common than in our small animals, to my experience again. Um, Sorry, I distracted you, but you yeah. were you were talking about yeah. um, uh, other. But that's good. It's always <laughs> it's always good, like in anything that we approach with an open mind. Yeah. Don't make our heads around what we're gonna find. Just make sure that you ask, all the, be curious, and check everything, and make sure that you 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 follow your protocol and that you check everything before you make your diagnosis and start your treatment. Because in ice, a lot of the structures are very interrelated to each other. So. You, um, if you have got a non-functioning eyelids, you might have a pathological cornea. You have an, a non-functional tear film pathology in the cornea, intraocular problems pathology of the cornea, and the cornea is yet one of the structures that we see more clearly when there is pathology. So you need to make sure that that is not the tip of the iceberg or that isn't a side effect of something else going on. And the best way to get there is by always doing a full exam and always make sure that you check everything you can see. Yeah, so from eyelids... Conjunctiva, cornea, anterior, anterior chamber, iris, lens, vitreous, retina, and even all of it. A very thorough approach. So you, in both eyes. Exactly. <laughs> and all in five minutes. And, exactly. And uh, so keratitis, like. Oh yes. So um, super. So let's make sure. Let's. We've done everything. All ticked. All the boxes. Look at everything, and we now. Quite, uh, we have quite a lot of indications to think that that is a primary corneal pathology. So, one relatively common, I would say, I found in the last few years, um, and especially at the area that went here, I don't know around London if there is a lot more than when I work in Newmarket, um, um, of immunomediated keratitis. So, again, as its name says, is an immunomediated condition, so a non trigger but uh, primary inflammatory response against the corneal tissue. So this ice, if you look at them under the microscope, have got a lot of lymphocytes and plasma cells into their corneas. Um, Lack of pathogens um, or infectious agents, just a primary immunomediated um, pathology of the cornea. Similar to a panas in a horse, in a dog. Yeah, so this pigmentary keratitis that German shepherds get. So a primary immunomediated condition of the eye. Um, there are several types. They l- we love classifying <laughs> ocular conditions in horses. There's like six or seven types from epithelial, anterior stroma, mid stroma, deep stroma, um, um, endothelial, and 
ubiocaratopathy. Well, there's lots of types. Um, generally, they present with um, chronic opacity that is l flaring up less and more obvious, potentially associated with pain, potentially associated with furosine uptake. Um, so some forms um, are mainly involve the surface of the cornea, the epithelium. So um, this might cause us pinpoint multifocal areas of fluorescein uptake, which needs to be differentiated and big differential diagnosis of herpetic keratitis, which horses can get as well. Um, and um, this case is usually not that painful, uh, not that severe. They can respond to anti-inflammatory medication and not recur so much. The one that we see more often is a slightly deeper into the thickness of the cornea, is the mitstromal. Um, and this one is a little bit more similar to EIU, so it's obviously affecting a different part of the eye, but they are on-off flare-ups of ocular pain, um, plus-minus vascularization of the cornea, not so often um, ulcerative like the superficial forms, but they can have fluorescein uptake. Um, and the cloudy eyes that on and off become painful and the cloudiness is worse when the eye is painful. Um, this case is very, very important. Look at the intraocular structures, rule out that there is no EIU. Yeah, that you don't see any signs of chronic EIU. Um, and they'll probably respond, maybe not to complete resolution of the opacity, because that with time scars, um, but they'll get better with anti-inflammatories. Sometimes um, they're top topical, anti topical and sometimes systemic is a very painful. You might need to add um, atropine if they got a bit of reflex uveitis, but the uveitis will be secondary to the corneal pathology. Um, but topical um, anti-inflammatories, again, um, you got um, non-steroidal such as acula, um, which contains keterolac. Um, you got yellow that contains bromfenac or you got topical steroids such as PRET40 with prednisolone or Maxidex, Maxitrol with dexamethasone. So you've got different options. Um, the only one of all these that comes in an ointment form is Maxitrol. That's why it's so commonly used as um, topical anti-inflammatory in the horse because it's less often application stays on the eye longer um, than the others. But this... Um, Similar to the EIU, this steroid non will help us with the flare-ups of the condition. If we have got an immunated underlying disease, so cyclosporin um, might be um, um, helpful in these cases to sort of like, similar to EIU when we put it in with the implants, um, control the underlying immunomediated disease and prolong the episodes of flare-ups and l make them less severe when they occur. Um, we've got cyclosporine, thanks God, in ointments that we use very routinely as more animals for the treatment of immunomediated dry eye. Um, so um, optimum can be used in horses for the treatment of this condition. Um, the reason why we don't use an EAU is because it doesn't penetrate very well mucous membranes, so it will not penetrate into the eye. Um, Cyclosporin is very lipophilic, so it won't penetrate to the cornea. We need to put it right there for the EIU. Yeah, that's why we have to put an implant for EIU. If we got a surface ocular condition, then it's good to use um, Optimune. So these horses might be maintained on one Optimune every day when they are not having flare-ups. 
Um, this flare-ups, the main problem with this immunomediated keratitis is that if they do become ulcerated, these eyes are at very high risk of developing complications because they've been chronically immunosuppressed. Um, horses' flora contains a lot more fungi than as more animals, um, and obviously other bacteria that can be um, uh, pathogens to the cornea. So these eyes, if they become ulcerated, they are quite high risk of becoming melted, so developing melted ulcers, as severe as a fungic keratitis can be, um, which can lead to the loss of the eye or requiring corneal repair surgery, etc. Um, so, and apart from this, some of these immunomediated keratitis won't respond completely to um, topical medication or medication in general, and they might need to be similar to what we, how we focus the treatment of ERU, the, the abnormal tissue might need to be removed. So there is something that is called a keratectomy, um, which um, means removal of corneal tissue. So we would surgically remove certain amount of thickness of the cornea, depending where this abnormal part is. Put a contact lens on and hopefully, without obviously we're creating a very weak ulcer with an eye that is immunocompromised because it's been very immunosuppressed for quite a while. Um, that it's attached to a horse, that they've got a lot of fungus and things sitting around. Um, so they are high risk of developing complications, but that's something that we routinely do in these cases. Other surgical approaches is that if we know that these cases respond to Optimune, we can implant Optimune with um, or we can implant cyclosporine with other type of implants underneath the conjunctiva. Um, so that will slowly release um, cyclosporine through a few years. There's not so many studies about long-term follow-up of this one since this type of cyclosporine implant is different than the one for EIU, but is um, um, it's more recently developed, so there's not that many long-term um, outcome for papers for this um, implant, but I, I've had good results and a couple of years later we had to replace them in some horses because they've lasted for two years but then they started flaring up again. Then we had to repeat them, so I think they do work well. So it's something that could be um, con uh, considered uh, on a later on when you have got one of this immunomediated keratitis relatively controlled with Optimune you might want to add that, those implants to remove the having to put ointment to my horse every day out of the equation by adding these implants. And imagine putting those implants in is, is more of a, a specialist optimal, ophthalmologist Yes, I mean, um, the, the team that's developed this implant is the same team that has developed the ERU implants in the States, and they will selectively sell the implants to a specialist. Um, so they cannot actually, I think I would say even diplomats, so I don't think they even sell, sell them to certificate holders. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but uh, definitely they'll select who they sell the implants to. Um, but difference from the other ones, these implants can be placed on standing. Um, and I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. There's so much actually I want to talk to you about. And it happens quite often when we have people uh, on the podcast that I think, oh, there's actually, well, we could talk about other things that I really have no idea about, particularly with uh, with Pony's eyes or anything like that. <laughs> so thank you uh, so much uh, for your time today, Rosé. It's, no it's been a pleasure. Been a pleasure. <laughs> it's been a pleasure to, to listen to you. And so we'll wrap it up there for, for everyone listening. And thank you for your time today. So don't 
don't don't forget um, to hit that subscribe button on your generic free based device, and that way you don't even have to worry about missing a podcast. If you could leave us a five star review, that would be great. And don't forget to tell your friends. We'll place any show notes on the RBC pages, so just type in RBC Clinical Podcast into your search engine of choice, and it should be top of the tree. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. You can either email dbarfield at rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Tom Barfield. Until next time, bye bye.